Good afternoon. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. I'm glad you all are here with us this afternoon to, to worship God. And, and this afternoon, we're going to be continuing our series in the study of the Gospel of Mark. We're coming to the end. Uh, we're coming to the climax. We are coming to the cross. Uh, today, we are going to be looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and then we're going to take two weeks out of the, the Gospel of Mark, where we're going to look at Jesus uh, both uh, from different aspects. We're going to look at the preeminence of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, and then we're going to look on Palm Sunday at the kingship of Christ. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, so we'll look forward to, uh, to that. Uh, but today we look at the cross. Um, with that introduction, why don't we go ahead and read God's Word. You can find it printed for you in your bulletins. Uh, or you can follow along in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 21 to 47. 21 to 47. A big chunk, uh, but we'll look, we'll look at this. Hear God's word. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on, the le- one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and Joseph of Joseph and Salome. While he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself 
looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was there, was where he saw where he was laid. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe and wonder at the cross that you, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, would come to earth to take on flesh, to be born of a woman to become a servant, to suffer, to die for us. And so, Lord, today, as we look at the cross, help us to see your salvation and the wonder of Jesus and help us to worship him and give him all praise and honor and glory. We thank you for him. We thank you for his work, for his life, for his death, And Lord, we look forward to praising him on Easter Sunday for the resurrection. But even now, as those who live this side of the grave, he is resurrected. And we give all praise and glory to Jesus who sits enthroned at your right hand. And we look forward to the day when he'll come again. Help us to see Jesus today, we ask. For we ask this in his name. Amen. I asked last week... um, Why the cross? Of all the ways that Jesus, God, and the Father, and the Holy Spirit together, the triune God, of all the ways they could come up with, why the cross? And we looked at it and we said it was because it was the only way of salvation. It was the only way. But really, this scratches at the surface, right, of, of the cross and the wonder of it. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the significance of the cross and realizing this is at the very heart of the faith, heart of our faith. And as I was studying this text and reminding myself of these uh, words, uh, words that I've read many times, a story that is very familiar to me, I still, as I started to write my sermon, I realized how much there was to say, how rich and deep and wondrous uh, this, uh, this cross, this Lord of glory who willingly laid down his life, how, how amazingly rich and deep uh, this is. John Piper wrote a little book uh, called The Passion of Jesus Christ. It's, it's great. It's a little devotional if you're interested in it. Um, and in this reflection on the purpose and significance of the cross, uh, he reflects on 50 reasons, 50 reasons for the cross. And I don't think he's exhausted it. And each one of his reasons could be uh, expanded and explored. I just want to read some of them to you. I'm just going to go through the, uh, the list. Why the cross of Jesus? One, to absorb the wrath of God. Two, to please his heavenly Father. Three, to learn obedience and to be perfected. Four, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead. Five, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners. Six, 
to show his own love for us. Seven, to cancel the legal demands of the law against us. Eight, to become a ransom for many. Nine, for the forgiveness of sins. Ten, to provide the basis for our justification. And he goes on and on, 50. And I think he's still just scratching at the surface of the wonder of the cross. This morning, we're not going to say everything there is to say, for sure. Uh, But I want us to look at it, nonetheless. And particularly, I want us to consider Jesus as the Son of God, and particularly looking at him as this self-designation as the Son of Man. So he calls himself the Son of Man throughout the gospel. We've looked at this in the past. And I want to think about what does it mean that he's the Son of Man as he comes to the cross? And that's what we're going to look at. And I want us to behold him as the Son. I want us to to wonder at him as the Son. Uh, So we're going to look at this. We're going to behold the Son of Man. um, And then we see in the text how the centurion, when he when Jesus breathes his last and, and the centurion has been bearing witness to the crucifixion, he says, truly, this is the Son of God. I want us to consider that second. And then finally, I just want us to reflect for a minute at the end to behold him there in the tomb as we wait expectantly for the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man, to rise again. So we'll, we'll look at this in those three parts. First, behold the Son of Man. As we begin to look at Jesus on the cross this afternoon, uh, this is what we're going to focus on. Throughout the Gospels, as I mentioned, Jesus refers to himself uh, as the Son of Man. It was his favorite self-designation. So when he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And said, "Say some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And Peter says, he then asked them, well, who do do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. And Jesus doesn't say, you're right, I'm the Christ. He He does acknowledge that that's correct. But then he goes on to talk about himself as the Son of Man and what the Son of Man must do, how he must suffer and die. This was his favorite self designation. And in this designation, there are really two aspects if you will, of Christ that are highlighted. One is Jesus's authority and power, the Son of Man's authority and power. This this term, Son of Man, was an Old Testament term, came from the, 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 the prophet Daniel's vision. I don't know if you remember the vision, but in Daniel chapter 7, there's a vision uh, that Daniel has of this one who was a son of man who approaches the ancient of days and he's given all power and authority. He is the king of kings and he approaches uh, the God of glory, his father. And throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus expresses this authority. He says in uh, earlier in the gospel, he says, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That was part of that power and authority that the Son of Man has. Second, he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Right? His power, he has authority. He's Lord even of the Sabbath. That ordinate, that or, that ordained day of rest and worship that was established in creation. Jesus is Lord over that as well. Right? Or later he says, They will see the Son of Man 
coming in the clouds with great power and glory, referring to that last day when Jesus comes again. Uh, Do you see that, though? The designation of the Son of Man as the one who has power and authority. But there's a second aspect to this idea of Son of Man that we see in the Gospel of Mark, and it is very different in some ways than that picture of the one who comes with the clouds, who comes with authority and power and glory. It is also a picture of his suffering. So he will say this, How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Or elsewhere, he says in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And again, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here we are. Here we are in our final few weeks of looking at this wondrous story of good news, we come to that place where the Son of Man, both in his power and authority, as well as in his humiliation and sacrifice, come to this moment here at the cross. I want to begin by looking at the suffering and shame of the Son of Man. As a reminder, last week we saw the, the, the trial before Pilate, how Pilate didn't really want to really deal with Jesus. Uh, he was, couldn't understand why the Jews had given Jesus to him. Nevertheless, he was uh, willing to let Jesus die because he was happier to uh, save himself. And so he turned him over to uh, the soldiers. And what did they do? They flogged him. They mocked him. They beat him. They spit on him. They, they started the process of his suffering. And so they come to the point where they had they put the robe on him and they had given him the crown of thorns. And they had said, oh, you know, king of the Jews, uh, prophesy and all sorts of things. And now they've taken off that purple robe. They've given him back his clothes. And they're leading him to the, to the crucifixion site, to Golgotha. And he'd been flogged. He'd been beaten. And he was weak. And so as they were going, it was the regular thing for the person who was going to be crucified to carry the, the, the crossbar, the, the, the beam that he would be hung on, to carry that over his shoulders and to go and to follow. Um, but Jesus was too weak. He couldn't carry it. So there was a man here. His name was Simon. Uh, he was from Cyrene. Cyrene was in Libya, so he had come a long distance for the Passover. He was part of that great diaspora of Jews who had spread out all over the Mediterranean world, and he had come to worship the living God. And just a little bit about uh, uh, Cyrene, um, it was actually sort of a hotbed, if you will, of Jewish uh, zealots, of, pl- of people who were interested in seeing the overthrow of the Roman authorities. And so Simon, maybe, maybe he was a zealot. We aren't told anything about him, but he was there in Jerusalem. <laughs> and at the very least, he was a Jew who lived in Cyrene, who 
did not like Roman authority and oppression, and now he's being told to carry another man's cross. We don't know much else uh, about this man, Simon. In the Gospel of Mark here, we're told a little bit of detail. We're told that he had two sons with him, Rufus and Alexander. They're only mentioned here in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And maybe Mark mentions them because his readers would have known them. I don't know. Later in Paul's letter to Rome, there's a reference to a Rufus and to his mother. Simon isn't mentioned. Um, But it is possible that it's the same Rufus, Simon's son, and maybe it was on this day that Simon, following Jesus with the cross, came to understand and know the Lord Jesus, and maybe his family as well. We We don't know. We don't know. Maybe Simon's family stayed after the Passover till the day of Pentecost. We're told in the, gospel, or in the, in the book of Acts that there were people from, from Cyrene, Cyrenians, that were there that day who heard the gospel preached in their own tongue. I don't know. We aren't told. Can't be sure. But what we can be sure about, what we know about this text and why we're told this little bit of detail about Simon carrying the cross for Jesus was that Jesus could not carry it himself. He was broken. He was bruised. Unless you're 25 years or younger... Most of you know what it means to feel like dust of the earth. Every Saturday morning, a group of us get together to play basketball. This week, we had access to a full court. You know, that's exciting, right? A bunch of middle-aged, some younger guys, I suppose, but mostly middle-aged guys trying to run up and down a full court. It lasted one game. And then, we, then we're like, let's go back to half court. <laughs> we're dust of the earth. I guess we tried it one more time and... Quit it again. As humans, we are frail. We are from dust to dust. Here was the Son of Man, like us in every way, yet without sin. Here he was, dust of the earth. And as he stumbled along, he came eye to eye with his own mortality. Think about that. The Lord of glory. The Lord of glory could not physically lift the cross onto his shoulders. The one through whom all things were made, whether on earth or in heaven, could not pick up a piece of wood and walk. They marched him through the streets of Jerusalem. One commentator noted that it was like the emperor's march. Normally you would have, if an emperor came in, he'd march through the streets and there would be a big parade for him, but here was the exact opposite. Stripped of his robe, here was a man. And in the eyes of his detractors, he was nothing more than a man. Someone to be pitied, someone to be mocked. And they marched him to Golgotha. Golgotha was the place of the skull. Uh, It was Scholars debate exactly where it was, but it, it, 
not necessarily all that important, but it was probably a low hill, a bare hill, a round bare hillock, likely just barely outside the city walls of that day. But wherever it was, it was meant to be visible for the passerby, right? It was meant to be a, a Rome's way of saying, hey, look, this is where insurrectionists go. If you want to be like an insurrectionist, then, uh, then you can be like these men here that are hanging on a cross. It was a horrific thing to see. I can't even imagine walking into Jerusalem. If you were a pilgrim coming for the Passover, uh, you would be quickly reminded of the oppressive power of Rome as you walked in. You would also be reminded to mind your P's and Q's, right? So this man, Jesus, was led through the crowds with Simon to that bare hillock, and there he was nailed to the cross, and he was lifted up. Mark actually doesn't go into great detail about all of the gory details of being crucified. Um, We do have historical records of these things, of what the crucifixion was like in terms of the physical terror of it, uh, how it was administered, and so forth. And I think sometimes we fixate on those details because, well, I think it's part of our way of wrestling through what happened, right? So where and how they nailed him, the, the process of his death, you can go and read about it. You can look up scholarly articles on how they think it all unfolded. You can look at the historical records of Roman crucifixion, and you can learn all the details, all the little details surrounding his death. And, and like I said, I don't think that's a, it's not an uncommon thing for us as humans to sort of want to know all the bits and pieces. If you've ever grieved over the death of a loved one, you know what I mean. You you know what it's like to sit there and say, okay, why, how, what's going on here? I need to know. I need to understand why this is happening, what's going on, how it's happening. And so we get fixated on sometimes on those details because, because it helps us understand a little bit. But Mark doesn't do that. Rather than focusing on the how of the cross, and I think for uh, Jews living in Rome, they would have had way too much knowledge of the how of the cross. They would have understood it. They would have seen it. It would have been a terror to them. But Mark doesn't do that. He focuses on the people surrounding the cross. Let's look here. We have all sorts of people surrounding the cross. We have Roman soldiers who mocked him and beat him, who marched him and crucified him, who wrote the mocking inscription above his head, who cast lots for his clothes. We have some unnamed person who offered him a mixture of wine and myrrh, probably something that would numb the pain, which Jesus refused. We also see the two robbers here, likely insurrectionists, just like Barabbas, those condemned alongside Jesus. (laughs) Nevertheless, they take their shots, or at least one of them does. Mark just kind of lumps them together. We know from the other gospel accounts that one of them professed faith in the Lord Jesus, asked for forgiveness. As an aside, it's interesting. You know, this, this is an excruciating thing to be crucified. But I don't think the excruciating pain was 
the pain necessarily the physical pain. I think that was excruciating. Jesus could barely lift the, 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 the piece of wood. Uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like to hang. Most people took days to die. That's why Pilate was so surprised when he found out that Jesus had died so quickly. But I don't think the excruciating pain was necessarily all related to the physical pain. Rather, it was because of the rejection he was receiving, right? From all the people that he came to save. That's why he wept over Jerusalem. As, as an aside, I, this is what I meant to say before. As an aside, the, the word excruciating, just kind of trivia question, but it's still interesting. The, the word excruciating comes from the Latin uh, word crux, which is cross, and ex, which is at the beginning of it, uh, which is the intensification of that word, crux or cross. So you might translate this. The next time you think about this word uh, uh excruciating, when you say this pain is excruciating, you can think of the cross, the painful Roman cross-like experience that you're facing. You can think of Jesus. Who else do we see? We see the robbers. We also see the passers-by who repeat the false accusations that were heard earlier uh, during the trial. They say, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. The Jewish leaders are also there. They had already thrown their shots at Jesus, but they came into the crowd to do the same. And they mock him and they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But in the midst of the crowd, and in the face of accusers and those who mocked and crucified Jesus, we see the Son of Man. We see his suffering. He even refuses that elixir. You kind of wonder why. Why would, why would you refuse the elixir? Um, I think... He chose to experience the unmuted pain of the cross for you and for me. He experienced that physical and emotional and psychological pain. But maybe most significantly, the Son of Man experienced the abandonment of his heavenly Father. He experienced the full wrath of God. The text says at the sixth hour around noon, when the sun is at its apex, there was darkness over the whole land. It was there for three hours while he suffered on the cross. And the whole of creation was, in, in a sense, reflecting on the horror of the moment it's as if the creation was groaning out, Why, O oh Lord? Why would you forsake your one and only Son? Darkness covering the earth. The horror when the Father poured out his wrath on the Son and he forsook his Son, Jesus. 
And so Jesus quotes from that psalm that we heard earlier in the service. And he said, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There in that darkness, the Son of Man was alone. Now we do read in the text that there were those around him. We see the women particularly highlighted, don't we? Women looking on from a distance. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome. Presumably Joseph of Arimathea, maybe he was present or nearby. Simon was, of course, there. Nevertheless, Jesus in that place, in that moment, as he hung on the cross, he did it alone. He endured the wrath of God alone. And after being offered more wine, he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Here was the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the one who took on dust and dirt and demise. He took on our frailty, our flesh. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, no matter how many times we've read the story. It just seems unfathomable. Like, what... How is this possible? And though it seems unfathomable, and in one sense it is, in another sense the cross makes complete sense. You see, you and I are inextricably tied to the horror of this suffering of the Son of Man. We are linked to it. We are tied to the wickedness and the awful pain of this moment. It is tempting to look at the cross through the distance of time and to feel a sense of detachment, to think it doesn't have anything to do with me. Friends, you are not detached. I am not detached. My sin, your sin, all our failings and rebellion and selfishness and pride and hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment and all the immoral thoughts and words and actions that we do, all the covetousness and the disobedience and the disrespect, all our love for self and our love for money and our love for power, all of it, whatever it is, ties us to this moment, to the cross. It's why Jesus, the Son of Man, suffered on that hill, on that dark day. As the hymn writer says, It was our sin that held him there. It held him there. But it wasn't against his will. It was by his loving obedience to the will of his Father in heaven that he hung on that cross for our sins. You see, the suffering of the cross, the most ignominious and horrific form of death, was the only way to satisfy divine justice. The truth is, you and I, we're the traitors, not Jesus. We're Barabbas, right? The crowd yells, crucified. Do you want Barabbas? No, give us Jesus. Why? Why? We're the insurrectionists who have in Adam rebelled not against 
an oppressive regime like Rome, we rebelled against the glorious, holy, loving, righteous creator of heaven and earth. The Roman cross is really not even a fit judgment for us. It pales in comparison to the judgment that is fit for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he did not just suffer this Roman death. He endured the wrath and curse of God for you and me. Friends, the Son of Man endured hell. I want you to see the Son of Man. Behold him. Wonder at him. Because he did this because he loves you. It's impossible for us not to spend time dwelling on the cross and the suffering of the Son of Man for us and for our sin. It's impossible not to be in wonder of him just in that respect alone that that he would humble himself to this point. But it's not a complete picture. He did humble himself. He did suffer. He did die. And he died a death that only the Lord of glory could. But in this moment, we also see his glory. In this most horrific of moments, we see the amazing power and authority of the Son of Man on display. And that's what I want us to look at right now, just for a minute, is this idea that he is indeed the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. But he is God himself there. I stated above that there were two aspects, right, to the designation Son of Man. And we've looked at the reality that he took on flesh. He took on the dust of earth and he faced death and he faced hell. But the Son of Man also came with authority and power. The onlookers thought that Jesus had cried out to Elijah. Did you see that? They thought he had cried out to Elijah. He had said, Eloi, Eloi. Uh, that word Eloi is, uh, uh, is uh, Aramaic for my God, right? And it's translated for us uh, by, by Mark, in fact. Um, it was Aramaic, and then he translated it into the Greek, which we now get into the uh, English. And Eloi simply means my God. Elijah, on the other hand, means my God, the Lord, right? So you can see, you can kind of see how these two words are very similar, and how they might have thought he was crying out to Elijah for help. And you might understand the confusion. But they took this as one more opportunity to mock him, saying that maybe Elijah would come down and take him, get him off the cross. But here's the reality. He cried out, my God, my God. And indeed, God abandoned him in that moment to the grave, turned his back on him. But though he did that, he would not leave him there, but would, in fact, glorify him, would, in fact, take him out of the grave and raise him up in three days. And Jesus came down from the cross. He entered the grave, but only for a moment. And we'll look more at the the resurrection in a few weeks. In that moment, as he breathed his last, the sky that was darkened presumably became brighter. It says that the sky was darkened for the time. 
But in that moment that he breathed his last, the Son of Man with all authority and power, even as he endured the wrath of God, Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. Do you notice what happens in the text as he breathes his last? What happens physically in the world at that moment? The veil that stands between the Holy of Holies and the priests and anyone who would enter into it is split in two. This giant fabric was just split in two. And it was a symbol saying access has now been granted to God himself. This is the power of the one and only who came to this world to break sin and death that we might have access to the throne of grace, not because of anything in us, but because of his great love for us. And there at the foot of the cross, we see the power and authority of God and Christ to overcome even the most hard-hearted of persons. Don't you see that? Here was a centurion. Maybe he was one who cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Maybe he was one who hurled insults and curses. Maybe he was one who beat him. Maybe he was the one who took a hammer and a nail and pierced him through the hand. Maybe he was the one who said, King of the Jews. Ha, save yourself. But as Jesus breathed his last, as the King of glory, the Son of Man, who has all authority in heaven and earth, breathed his last, he broke the hard-hearted centurion's heart. And he breaks our hearts too. He takes it, that heart of stone that you have, and he takes it and he makes it beat new. That's what the Spirit does, comes into our hearts, takes that heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, all because of this work on the cross that Jesus did that the Lord of glory came to do. That centurion was weak in his flesh. He couldn't save himself, but as the Lord of glory died, he beheld the Son of Man and said, this is the Son of God. Joseph of Arimathea takes him or goes to Pilate and asks for his body. Pilate's like, he's dead already? Wow, that was fast. Asked the centurion, maybe this centurion, I don't know, maybe it was another centurion, but he asked, is he really dead? Yes, he's dead, dead. Joseph of Arimathea takes the body, wraps it in a linen cloth, and puts it in his tomb. Giant stone is rolled over that tomb. And we're told Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They just saw him there, full of grief and anguish. Imagine Joseph felt something similar. I see him there, lying dead for us. I see him there. 
but this is the Son of Man. And no grave was going to hold him back. Nothing was going to stop him from accomplishing the work that he was set out to do, which was to deliver us from our sins, to forgive us, to justify us, to count us as righteous. And he was going to do that through his death, but he was going to do it through the power of his resurrection. And so we look at the tomb in expectation that the Lord of glory, the Son of Man, this Son of God would come, would die, would lay in dust, so to speak, but would break the power of reigning sin. What does that mean for you and me? Well, first, it's just, it means for those who put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus, we have life. We have resurrection life. We have hope. We have forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus covers our sin. And the reigning power of sin and death is vanquished. Praise be to the Son of God. Let's pray.